Hello and welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we will be continuing in our study through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2. We will be taking up verses 18 through 28 and finishing out the second chapter in Mark. Um, Last week we talked about Jesus and how he was eating with the sinners and how he was being opposed by the Pharisees and what was going on with that. But before we get started, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for uh, this day, Lord. Thank you for another opportunity to share your word. Father, I pray that anybody listening out there today, Lord, that doesn't know you would come to know you through these messages. Father, I pray that you would bless this time, that you would bless this ministry, and you would just uh, continue. Just go before me, Lord. Change me from the inside out, Lord, as we all seek to change to be more like you. Father, I thank you, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and so continuing on, on that theme today, we're going to look at how uh, Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come to um, uh, to exalt himself. He didn't come to to uh, fluff up or to uh, congratulate the <clears throat> righteous people, the the self righteous religious people. But he came to call sinners. Right? He came to call people like you and me that needed him, that were in need of salvation, and so. You know, we go from one scene where Jesus is sitting and he's eating with uh, uh, with sinners and publicans, as they call them, or tax collectors. And uh, continuing on, we read in Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 18, it says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old garment, and the tear is made worse. And no one put uh, pulls puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts and the wine skin uh, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So Jesus' critics were off-put by his presence among the non-religious. If we remember John the Baptist, we know that he was, uh, you know, he was basically a reclusive individual, right? He lived out in the desert. He ate bugs. He wore a a, a burlap shirt, uh, for instance. You know, he wasn't the type of person that was going to be hanging out at at parties or um, when he was invited to these types of of gatherings and stuff. He wasn't showing up. But Jesus was. And neither were the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees had a belief that they were above everybody else, that they were separated from the sinners. They wouldn't go around normal people, only the religious people that were were practicing and following. In the Mosaic Law and and, and, in basic Judaism. Now... In the Bible, we see, as these guys are put off by Jesus feasting and and having a good time and eating, um, in the Bible, if we go into and we look in the Old Testament (coughs) and in the Mosaic Law, we find God giving the order to hold seven feasts, right? We do not find in any place uh, a place where God is ordering fasting. So these guys were trying to live under the law, but the law... Um, that they were uh, adhering to was the law of man and not the law of God. 
you know, the burdens that they had laid on the people and especially the poor people um, were impossible to obey. You know, it, it, and it's basically what happens in religion is when you set a standard that's so high that nobody can follow it, nobody can adhere to it, even the people that claim to be adhering to it are still sinning in, in the same way too because there is no way to hold up to these lofty expectations. You know, they had turned life for many into a sort of death because anything that a person had, had did or was doing was nitpicked to the point that the people stopped caring. You know, we covered in our last study that Jesus was sitting and eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, these were guys that didn't care what the religious leaders had to say about them. They were done. And the truth is that Jesus came to save sinners and not to congratulate the self-righteous. And so it was only natural that he would be sitting with them and eating with them, doing the opposite of the Pharisees. In verse 19, it says, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So, you know, a relationship with Jesus is a marriage to God. The marriage feast is a celebration. You know, when we think of a wedding, we think of the after party, right? We think of the reception. When we gather together and, uh, around the wedded couple, we have a feast, we dance, we sing, we laugh, we have a good time. There's cake. I mean, how much better of a time can you have when there's cake? Um, it's a good day, right? And Jesus came to be wedded to his people. The Jews knew that marriage was one of the pictures of, in the Old Testament uh, to help explain Israel's relationship to the Lord. You know, they had been married to Jehovah. They be, and they belonged only to him. Now, when the nation turned to foreign gods, as they often did, they committed a spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to their husband, and they had to be disciplined. The major theme of Hosea is God's love for his adulterous wife and his desire to restore the nation to his, uh, uh, to his favor once again. We see in Scripture also where John the Baptist had declared Jesus to be the bridegroom. He, he declared him to be the person that everybody was waiting for. In John chapter 3, verse 29, it said, He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You know, the, in fact, if we look back at Jesus's ministry, the first miracle that he performs in his entire ministry took place at a wedding feast when he turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. We can read about that, you know, on our own time. The arrival of Jesus marks the arrival of the kingdom of God. It marks the arrival of the celebration of the, free, of, of the freedom that only Jesus could bring us by delivering us from our sins. You know, when we see Jesus sit and eat with sinners, we are looking into the time when Jesus began to invite people into that celebration. He's inviting people to that wedding feast where the people, uh, we are those people, you know, us included. Uh, from the, the, the time that he came to the time when the last Gentile is saved. You know, we are the people that were invited to that wedding feast, just as he was doing in his day when he was here with us. <clears throat> you know, we enter into a life, a relationship, and a marriage with God through Jesus. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to him, uh, married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. You know, when we come to Jesus, we come into a commitment with Jesus. Two people are not married because they like each other or because they have strong feelings for each other. It's because they have committed to each other. 
They have given themselves over to each other. You know, Jesus gave his life for us, and in turn, we give our lives back to him. We enter into a one-to-one conditional contract with the Lord when we ask for salvation. You know, what does the Lord say so many times in Scripture? If you believe, then you will be saved, right? If you believe, if you trust me, if you follow me, if you hold on to my word, then you will be saved. That's kind of what we go through in, in here. You know, it means that no matter what, you are committed to Christ, and Christ is committed to you. Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says, salvation from sin involves much more than a person knowing about Christ or even having good feelings towards Christ. Salvation comes when the sinner commits himself or herself to Jesus Christ and says, I do. Then the believer immediately enters into the joys of his spiritual marriage, uh, of his, this spiritual marriage relationship, bearing his name, sharing his wealth and power, enjoying his love and protection, and one day living in his glorious home in heaven. You know, when you are married to Christ, life becomes a wedding feast in spite of trials and difficulties. You know, we know we're going to go through trials. We know we're going to go through difficulties. We know we're going to have temptations and, and, and all these different things come our way, right? The Christian life is not an easy life, but it's the life that we enter into because we know that the reward is greater than, uh, than the trials and the tribulation. We know that when that time comes, we're going to be with Jesus in his presence, living with him in eternity, in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, <clears throat> you know, henceforth. Nothing will ever be able to take that away from us if we hold fast to the Lord, if we hold fast to the faith that we have in him, that trust, that understanding. Verse 20 says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus is telling us that fasting is a picture of his death. When somebody close to us passes away, we experience some agony, right? Hardship, heartbreak, and distress. Sometimes we lose our appetites, and sometimes we have prolonged sadness. What Jesus is pointing to in this verse is his death on the cross, and the time that is to be spent by his disciples in mourning and fasting. You know, even though he would die, though, he would rise again. And in fact, he has risen. And he is living. So what Jesus is saying is that even though he was not physically, uh, he is not physically with us now, and fasting is something that we do in order to get closer to him, and <clears throat> in prayer and in self uh, self denial, our Christian lives are not to be an eternal funeral, but a continual celebration of our wedding to Jesus. Right? We can fast. We can take some time. And, and it's good to fast sometimes, right? There's health benefits to it, but there's also spiritual benefits to it. You know, instead of eating, we pray. We take that time. We remember the Lord. We remember his sacrifice for us when we when we go into fasting periods. You know, but he he's still saying, he's like, you know what? You don't have to do this because I'm always going to be with you. I'm always here. I am risen. I am here with us, right? Jesus is always with us. We have no reason to be sad as Christians. We have no reason to be uh, worried about being oppressed or anything like that. Scripture tells us that it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But we also know the outcome. We know that we have the victory through Jesus Christ, right? Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts and the wines, uh, bursts the wineskins the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. You know, Jesus does not refine the old life. He brings new life to old people. 
Jesus did not come to fix the law. He did not come to add to it or mend it. He came to fulfill it. The law meant perfection, and no man aside from Jesus has ever been able to live up to it. Jesus came to die for our sins, and in doing so, give us new life. You know, we have two di uh, different illustrations here. The first illustration of the patch in an old shirt. We know that as a garment gets older, they shrink and they change, right? Either that or we just get fatter, whatever, you know, it, it happens. But when a shirt, for instance, tears, we throw it out because if we try to patch it, usually we don't have the best of outcomes, right? We have a piece of uh, 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 cloth in there that isn't shrunk, that isn't worn in the same way that that old shirt is. And you end up with like, I don't know, it, it's like a little bubble where that piece of, of cloth is, right? You can put those little patches on there too, but they, they just look ridiculous. It doesn't look the same. It's not the same, right? I have a, a, a old shirt that I have that I, I tore when I was playing a football game and, it, you know, it cost me a lot of money back in that day and I didn't want, I still, I still have it. It's in my drawer, in fact, and I've sewn it so many times, but it still comes apart. You know, it, it, and it's kind of an illustration of what's going on here. No matter what you do to the old life, you can add to it, you can uh, supplement it, you can do all this different stuff, but it's never going to be the same as having a new life, right? A new garment. And that's what he's saying. You know, what Jesus is saying is that he didn't come to patch up the law as the people knew it or refine it. The law being a picture of the old garment, but that he came to do something different. He came to bring a new garment to those that believe. To throw out the old garment that was the law, full of holes and patches, and give the robe of righteousness to those that believe. You know, he talks about bringing new wine, which is new life. New life came because Jesus came to die for our sins and remove them, and gave us new life in him. New life goes into a new man, the regenerate man, just as new wine goes into a new wine skin. You know, new life goes into the new man, and the new man puts on the new garment, the garment of righteousness and hope through faith and commitment to Jesus. You know, we become sons of God in our new garments and in possession of new life when we commit to, the, uh, to Jesus as Lord. You know, the Mosaic law was passing away and Jesus came to usher in the new covenant, the covenant in his blood in which man was reunited with God when the Holy Spirit would indwell and righteous, the righteousness of God would be given to man. And so, our next section of scripture, we're going to change uh, change gears a little bit. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's actions outweighing the traditions of men. You know, <clears throat> and we're going to see how the religious leaders kind of worked uh, in a certain way. But the way that Jesus was, was working and interpreting the law, we're going to see that he was bucking tradition. He was still following the law. He was still under the law. But the, the traditions that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders had added to the law was something that Jesus was not about to adhere to. And so uh, these, this is where the problems begin for him. And this is where the problem with religion grows. You know, growing up, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I went to catechism uh, every Tuesday after school. I went to confession on Saturday afternoons before going to church on Sundays. You know, I served as an altar boy with my brothers and trying to maintain the schedule that the church puts forth. It was a pretty daunting task. Anybody that's lived that life knows there's holy days of obligation. There's all this different stuff that's going on. Um, it, it, you know, it's hard. You learn customs. You memorize prayers. You memorize creeds. You walk a certain way at church. 
You act a certain way around grandma. You know, you've got candles, you've got shrines, you've got relics, you've got necklaces that are supposed to be tickets to heaven. You know, there are smells. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. But the one thing that I think the vast majority of Catholic followers miss out on is a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, I can tell you that was my problem with the whole thing. I can tell you growing up that I knew more that, about what I was supposed to do at church than I actually knew what I was getting out of church. You know, my brothers and I were altar boys, like I mentioned. We knew when to ring the bell. We knew how to put on the cassock, how to tie the rope belt, how to fold the doily that went over the cup, uh, when to kneel, when to bow, when to hold the book, when, uh, when and how to hold the book, when to sit, when to stand, and so on. You know, we were part of the religion. We were part of the tradition. We were part of the show, but we weren't getting anything out of it. We didn't have any type of real relationship with God. Now, this is not a means of provoking the Catholic Church. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. God looks at your heart and not at your works. And I believe that there are Catholics that are saved because they have gone beyond the religion and entered into the relationship that comes with knowing Jesus. You know, when we put our faith and we put our trust and we put our hope in Jesus, we are saved. That's all there is to it. You know, what does Romans 10.9 uh, say? It says, if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and is risen from the dead, then you will be saved. All right? And, and in that, you know, just because you go to a Catholic church and you, you know, you can still affirm that and still be saved. And I believe that. You know, I believe that there's family members. I believe that there's a lot of people that are out there that are saved. But, you know, that enjoy the tradition and stuff like that. And, um, you know, kind of going down a rabbit hole. But in this study, we're going to look at the way religion had become the way over the relationship in the time that Jesus had come. You see, religion and traditions are not really anything new. They've been around forever. And I think it's a deception that the enemy brought about as a means of separating people from God. You know, you may be caught up in religion. You may be caught up in the tradition but never know God. And in that, though, you could have a false sense of security in thinking that, well, because I partake and I do all these things, then I'm saved. But it doesn't work that way, right? We have to have that personal relationship with God in order to be saved. We have to know the one that knows us, right? He knows us. He knows each and every one of us. He knows the number of hairs on each one of our heads. But we have to know him back. You know, that's part of that one-to-one -one relationship. If you believe, then you will be saved. You know, re religion is a means of achievement-based salvation, uh, where we know that salvation is based, uh, based on faith, not on merit. You know, the Jewish religious leaders of the day had gone above the ordinances of God and began adding to what God had prescribed. We know that the Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel. Uh, and and uh, I'm bringing this up because we're going to deal with it a lot in these next two studies. Uh, by God as a day of rest. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and held it. So, speaking of the Sabbath day, there is no other mention of God giving the Sabbath to any other nation. He gave it to Israel. These were his chosen people, and this was instituted for them. 
You know, there are not many specifics as to what should uh, not be done in Scripture on the Sabbath day. We know that you are not to kindle a fire for cooking, gather fuel, or conduct business. The Jewish leaders insist that there are 39 things that, that were forbidden on the Sabbath. They even went as far as telling people how far they could travel on the Sabbath. Now, you know, I, I looked it up uh, and I found two different um, two different distances. One of them was 200 cubits, which is about 300 feet. And then I found another place where it said you can go up to uh, almost up to a mile of traveling. So I'm not sure the distance on that. You know, that would be a distance long enough, though, if uh, you take a look at a map of ancient Capernaum and, you know, a simple Google search will bring that up for you. And this is where this is taking place, right? This is Jesus's home base. Um, if you look at Capernaum, all the houses are centered around the synagogue. So on the Sabbath, you would be able to get up, travel a short distance, go to synagogue and make it back home and still be under um under uh, under the law that the Pharisees had laid down. Now, what was bothering the Pharisees and scribes the most, though, was the fact that Jesus was openly violating the traditions of the religion uh, and, and doing it in a way that uh, that God and not the law was being exalted. You know, if we look back at the first miracle that uh, he performed on the Sabbath, we find it in John chapter 5. And John chapter 5, verse 1 says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in, Jer in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in, First, after the stirring of the water was made well uh, of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already uh, uh, that he had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. There's the key point. The Jews therefore said to him, who was, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said, uh, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had, had withdrawn a multitude uh, being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So, we see that from this point on, the Pharisees were watching Jesus. You know, this is where the nitpicking begins with them. Now, if you look at their response to the man getting up, it wasn't praise for what had happened to the man. It was disdain because the man carried his bed. You know, they had to started to put man's law above the laws of God. And that is what leads us into the next uh, section of scripture in Mark. Jesus will violate man's traditions and elevate the works of God above them. 
Now, if we recall, there are over 4,200 religions in the world, but only one God. Not all religions lead to the same God, no matter what the world tries to say. You know, God is unique in his characteristics. He is unmatched in his holiness. He is above all that try to take his place. Religion means regulation. Regulation means works, and works mean failure. Jesus came to identify with us as a man, to take our sin and punishment for us in return for our trust and relationship with him. He came to give us a new life and set us free from bondage and fear. No tradition or regulation can do that. Mark chapter 2 verse 23 says, Now it happened <clears throat> that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went through, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and, and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the, the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some of those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So you see, the Pharisees were angered because the disciples worked to, on the Sabbath to eat. You know, we come to a scene again with Jesus and the disciples walking through a field. We do not know what type of field exactly that it was in. The King James says it was corn. It could have been barley. It could have been wheat. Um, the, the Greek word that's used for uh, that particular field was, uh, it means sown field or, or planted, cultivated uh, field. So it could have been any of those things. It doesn't really matter. Now the men were picking the heads off the plants and rolling the husks off to eat them. So I'd imagine it was either wheat or barley. But at this point, they were actually still obeying the, the, the Mosaic law of the Sabbath. Um, if we look back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24 and 25, it says, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So had they been uh, filling up buckets with grain, or had they been using a sickle, which is like a curved knife to cut the grain, they would have been in violation of the law. But what had happened over time is men interjected himself into the law and created a burden on others and, and over-regulated life, right? And now uh, they were casting judgment on those that they, uh, that they deemed to be lawbreakers. What it, it in turn was upsetting the Pharisees is that any type of work was being done at all. In verse 25 it says, But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, and he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in those days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to, uh, to those who were with him? You know, Jesus explains the difference between the law and justice to these guys. Now, Jesus does not argue the fact that the men were eating, that they were plucking grains and that they were traveling. You know, in the Old Testament, it states that one quarter of each field or the corners were to be left for the widows and the strangers to eat and harvest. You know, these men were taking advantage of that. They had to walk to get there. This was setting off alarm bells for the Pharisees who woke up on the Sabbath and were miraculously lifted up on a high horse every Sabbath so that they could watch and see and point fingers at anybody that was doing anything, right? 
Now, what Jesus does do is he reminds them of the precedent set when King David took the showbread from Abiathar the priest to eat when he had no other food. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 through 6. It says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he, had, when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, have you what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. At, uh, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it, had, when it was taken away. So another thing we've got to look at here is it was customary for rabbis to defend the actions of their disciples in that day. And that's just what Jesus was doing in this case. Now, if we look at the account of this incident in Matthew, which is pretty much awesome about all the Gospels, right? Because you have these different perspectives from uh, different authors, diff uh, you know, as they're watching these things. Matthew was, would have been with him, um, same as Peter was with him at this time. But um, we see Jesus explain it a little bit more in, in detail. You know, Matthew was the uh, Gospel written to the Jewish believers, right? He was, you know, describing the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, where Mark, the, the book that we're working through now, was written to the Greek believers. So the Greeks, they knew who David was. He was a king uh, of Israel before, but, uh, you know, they didn't really care much for the law, and they didn't really care much for the prophets. But we can get deeper insight and deeper look if we look into Matthew's account of it. So three things happen here. Jesus is going to give three different uh, arguments in, in the defense of his disciples. Now, the first one was David ate the showbread, even though it was not lawful, that, that it was unlawful, right? So if we look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, it said, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So even though the showbread was designated for the priest only to eat, the need of David outweighed the law, and so the bread was given to David and those who were with him, so that they could be nourished on their journey. You know, God cares more about his people and their needs than he does about traditions and the law in some cases. He provides for us in times of need, even when it's not along the lines of, of biblical living, right? He's going to make a way for us. The second thing he does is, uh, he says, is the priest defiled the temple on the Sabbath. If we look at Matthew chapter 12 again, verse 5 and 6, it says, Or have you not read in the law that the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane, that, that on the Sabbath, the, teeth, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. 
You know, in those days, there were two types of Pharisees. You had the uh, the Shamiites, and I know I'm butchering these words, uh, who were the stricter sect, and you had the Hill, uh, Hillelites, who were more of the lenient tithes. And so the Shams often accused the Hills of, of breaking Sabbath days. Now, Jesus appeals to the fact that the law actually calls for the priests to do work on the Sabbath in the temple in temple service, right? If we look at Numbers chapter 28, verse 9, it says, And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish, and two tenths of, of an ephah, a fine flour, as, as a grain offering, mixed with oil, with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering, which is uh, with its drink offering. So no matter what, there was always work being done in the temple. And that would constitute defiling the temple on the Sabbath day. But the principle that Jesus is drawing out is that work and service to God on a day of rest or a holy day was acceptable because what you were doing was also in service to others. Now, secondly, he says, yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. You know, the temple had become the center of all Jewish religion. It was the culmination of everything they believed in. For Jesus to come in and say that one greater than the temple was present probably rang in their ears for a minute, right? You know, these guys were probably like, what? What did this guy just say? Now, he was a man putting himself in place of their most sacred object. But Jesus was what Jesus was saying is this. Even though the priest does the work he is to do in the temple and thus defiling it, he is blameless because his service is to God. Even so, the men that follow me are serving God. In their service to me, they must eat, as David ate. They must harvest, as the priests do their work, but, the, but their service is to me. These are God's people, and therefore they are blameless. Now, the third thing that he says is God cares more for people than he does for ritual. If we look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, it says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus quotes Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That means that faith will always be greater than religious acts. You know, when we act in service to God, when we act as instruments for God, we are always taking the side of God. It is better to know Him and be humble and knowing that, uh, you know, that, that we have needs. Uh, and then not knowing him and live as if we are doing what we are doing is in his service, right? Uh, verse 27 says, uh, says he, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. So God created the Sabbath for man's benefit. The Sabbath day is part of the Old Testament covenant between the nation of Israel and God. The Sabbath was instituted as a means of refreshment, both physically and spiritually. It was a means of stopping all the work that we have to do, all the jobs and mundane tasks that we need to do to survive, to take, uh, to take a day and reflect on God and rest. You know, today we do not observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath today, you know, today we worship on Sundays and not on Saturdays. But the point is the same, to take a day to rest from works and reflect on God and what he has done for us. Now, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit with us, and that changes things for us as well. You know, when we are with God, every day is a holy day, and therefore we must rest from our works. 
We rest from trying to appease God, and we reflect on what He has done for us and through us. And we do that every day. We should be doing that every day. We should be giving homage to God every day, taking that time, resting, uh, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, spending time in the Word, you know, getting to know God, getting closer with Him. You know, that that's the only thing that's going to save us. That's the only thing that has saved us is Jesus Christ. So, you know, why not take that time and spend it with Him? You know, people with animals on the Sabbath day had to feed their animals. People with children had to take care of their children. Stuff like that had to be done. You don't go out and decide to chop down the forest on the Sabbath. But you did the things that you had to do in order to maintain what you had. You know, God's mercy and grace are not the, uh, the product of religious living. They are the result of faithful living. I see these folks every year uh, living here in New Mexico, and especially living here in Tomei, New Mexico. Uh, there's a big hill um, and you can Google Tome Hill, T-O-M-E Hill, um, and, and take a look at it. But it, it's a tall hill, and what would happen uh, in the 1600s is, you know, you had the Native American tribes over here, and you had the Spaniards coming through. Um, I live basically right next to the Rio Grande River, and that's where this podcast is coming from. And so uh, along that river, you had a trade route. It was called the Camino Real. And it started down uh, south in Mexico, and it went all the way up, uh, I think, up to Santa Fe. Uh, I might be wrong on that one. But uh, along that hill, uh, along that line, you have this big hill. And so what would happen is you would come through here, and you had the, the Navajo um, Indian tribes that would sometimes attack the Spaniards. And so what the Spaniards would do was they would go up on top of this big hill that's over here. It's kind of a steep hill. People walk up it all the time. Uh, I've gone up it a few times for exercise purposes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they could defend themselves. They would take the high ground right there. But now what happens every Good Friday, uh, people will make a pilgrimage to this hill. There's a bunch of crosses up there and, and, and stuff, and there's relics. And if you go up there, there's rosaries and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, people will walk from like 20, 30 miles away. Uh, starting at the wee hours of the morning to come over and walk up this hill. And, uh, you know, there's another place here in New Mexico uh, in Chimayo where people will go and they'll eat dirt that's supposed to uh, to heal you and all this other stuff. Um, you know, I live very close to this hill. And, and sometimes I'll be going out to work on Good Friday and uh, you see uh, the news crews out here parked in my backyard, basically. It's, it's pretty crazy. But you see people people walking, carrying these big sticks. Some are wearing no shoes. Uh, some people hit themselves. Some people crawl up the hill. And the belief is that they are doing it to please God. But you know what? The They couldn't be further from reality. You know what? Is it good to observe that day? Yes. Is it good to reflect on the events of that day? Yes. But are your actions or works on that day bringing, bringing you closer to God? As you try to show how holy you are by performing some feats of strength? No. You know, all the religions in the world point people to works and, and sacrifice. Christi Christianity as well has elements of sacrifice. The difference is, th is that we make the sacrifices willingly out of repentance and not as a rule of thumb. You know, we do these things inwardly and they show themselves outwardly. Right? Repentance happens inwardly, and outwardly our behavior changes because we have changed our mindset towards those things. Right? We're 
in religion, you basically have a bunch of outward acts, but the inward man is not changing. You know, each and every one of us has gone through some trials and changes, but they come as a means of God cleaning, cleaning us out, our lives. And, and not because it's Tuesday and it's time to walk up the hill with a hundred pound rock tied to our nostrils or something. There is only one true way to please God. There's only, uh, you know, only one, and religion cannot offer it, right? Religion says works. Religion says do this and God will be happy. Religion says follow these rules and God will be happy. Religion says give this much and God will be happy. But that's not the case. The one thing that we ever have to do to please God, the one thing, getting close for this, because this is a groundbreaking special thing that you're not going to get anywhere else. You have to trust him. That's it. That's all we have to do. We have to have faith. Faith is trust. Trusting God in the hard times. Trusting God in the good times. Trusting God in our failures. Trusting God in our triumphs. Trusting God through each and everything that we do. Looking to him. Waiting on him. In, you know, Calling on him in, in, in every situation. That's how we please him. We please him by trusting him by showing him that we love him, that we understand him, that we know that nothing else can save us. That's it. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the peace that you bring to our lives, Lord, when we know you. Father, when we can understand that no matter what, Lord, you have our best interests at heart. Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Father, I thank you, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.